As we're getting close to wrapping up this, this book of 1 Timothy, we're in chapter 6, verse 1. We're going to do the first 10 verses today. And I've entitled the message, Godliness with Contentment is Great Gain. Amen? He says in verse 6, I mean chapter 6, verse 1, he says, Let as many bondservants as are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and His doctrine may not be blasphemed. And those who have believing masters, let them not despise them because they are brethren, but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved. Teach and exhort these things. If any one teaches otherwise and does not consent to the wholesome words, even of the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which is accords with godliness, he is proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings of men of corrupt minds, destitute of truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. From such, withdraw yourselves. Now, godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and certainly we can carry nothing out. Having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, for which some have strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. Father, we um, lift this portion of Scripture up to you, Lord. We want to love you more. We want to know you more. And we want to be about your business, Lord God. Help to get ourselves out of the way and let you have your way in our lives. And Lord, I pray that you would just uh, speak to us clearly today, maybe something that we never saw, and take us deeper to our relationship with you. Pour out your Spirit on the church and give them ears to hear what the Holy Spirit is saying. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So as Paul is wrapping up this letter to Timothy, he's gone over a lot of things. He's taught us how to treat one another. He's taught us how to treat people in the congregation, how to treat leaders in the church. He's, he spoke out against false doctrines and making sure that you don't allow leaven into the church and you don't allow false doctrines to be taught, but to speak truth. And then he gets to this place where he talks about um, our personal lives and how we are to react with money. That we are to be thankful for what God has done for us. And that God gives money to us to use. And we use it for our families, but we also use it for God's glory. The things that we have that God has given us, He gives us to use for His glory, to further His kingdom. And you might be here today and you say, well, God's not giving it to me. Well, do you have a heart to take what God does give you and use it for His kingdom? And I'm not just talking about money and I'm not just talking about things. I'm talking about your time. I think it's a lot easier for people to give money than to give their time to Jesus. And God really wants you to serve Him. 
And so he's, he talks about our service to him through the first book of Timothy, all six chapters. And here we're looking at a portion of Scripture where he talks about employees and employers, slaves, servants, and masters. He talks about false doctrine, and he warns us against having a love of money. There's nothing wrong with having money. There's something really wrong when money becomes your God. When I look at um, that scripture here that says, Godliness with contentment is great gain. That's a real challenge for each and every one of us. Because a lot of times we are not satisfied, even as Christians. We always are desiring more. You, it's like you never have enough money. I'm just being real. You, you never have enough stuff. You set these goals. If I just had this much, and then you get that much, and you, if I just had a little bit more. And God wants us to be content with food and clothing. Now, we're very rich in the eyes of the world because I'm looking around and everybody's clothed pretty well and we're having food after this service. So we should be content. The difference between contentment and discontent is that we can look at things being content and go, wow, I've got so much. And then if you're discontent, you look at things and you go, I don't have what I want. It's kind of, do you see the glass half full or half empty? Do you look at the glass and go, I only got half a glass. Or do you look at the glass and go, wow, I still have half a glass. Are you content with what God has given you? Are you content where you're at in your walk with the Lord right now? That's important too. Now I know we live in a world of hardship. And a lot of people are struggling. A lot of people are hurting. And I don't fully understand why some people have a lot and other people don't seem to have anything. I don't fully understand it. I, I don't understand why some are struggling and have very little and they always seem like they're just on the edge of just total poverty, but they love Jesus. I don't understand why some are sick always and some are always healthy. There's some people that seem like they never get sick. And then there seems like people that every time you turn around, they're sick. I don't understand why some get cancer and some don't. God's ways are not our ways. I don't understand why some people have authority and power while other people who are good people have no authority and no power. But I do understand we live in a fallen world, a sinful world. And sickness and disease is the result of a fallen world. Rich and poverty is the result of a fallen world. Power and authority and weakness is the result of a fallen world. But wherever you're at in this fallen world, God can use you right where you are now. In life, God can use you right where you are now to share the gospel with all. To be a witness. For that's why we're here. We were created for His good pleasure, and what pleases Him is for us to share the Gospel. And God has put you in the workplace. God has put you maybe with wealth, but maybe in poverty, maybe in sickness, maybe in health. But He is using you wherever you're at right now to reach people that I can't. To reach people that others can't. Who better to witness to the sick than the sick? Who better to witness to the wealthy than the wealthy? 
Who better to witness to those in power than those in power who see the purpose of Jesus Christ and the great gift that He offers to all that will believe? Just as Joseph was sold into slavery, some of you feel like you're in bondage to poverty and slavery, working day in and day out, no money, not enough, barely making ends meet, always striving to just get a little bit more, to make your family comfortable. And sometimes that can derail us from God's purpose, focusing on what we don't have. I remember the story of Joseph, Jacob's son, sold into slavery. But being sold into slavery, like Job, you never see Joseph curse God. He always glorified God. He always praised God. He always gave thanks to God, even when he was a slave in Egypt. One of the lowest roles to play in Egypt. But he was determined to be the best slave. That sounds a little crazy, doesn't it? He was determined, no matter what position he was in life, to be an example of the true and living God. To be a reflection of our Lord Himself. And because of that determination, He was recognized as a very fruitful, profitable, hard-working, honest individual who was raised up to be the most powerful person in the world, second only unto Pharaoh. And so I say that to encourage you because maybe God's allowing you really tough times right now to work and work in you that you would never believe was true unless you witnessed what He's doing and see the fruit down the line. God wants to use you. We are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are representatives of Him. And God will use our current position in life to allow us the opportunity to share the Gospel, to be a reflection of Jesus Christ to an unsaved person. And so he talks to us first here in verses 1 and 2, referring to the workplace. Referring to, in our day we would call it employees and an employer. In their days it was called servants and masters, or slaves and masters. In Rome there were some 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. And in, in Rome they thought maybe we should mark them all so we would know who they are, and they thought about putting a white band on all the slaves. But then they were afraid because they thought, well, if all the slaves see how many slaves there are, practically more than we have people, they might rise up against us. So they, they can that. Slaves in that day didn't necessarily dis- declare their status of who they were like we would think. In those days, many wealthy people had slaves, employed them, or maybe had them working for them to pay a debt. But many wealthy people had servants employed who were doctors and teachers, chefs, uh, successful in business to run their house, and in many cases, uh, servants were deeply loved and part of the family. Now, there were some slaves that were mistreated, We've heard of all those stories, but others were loved by the families deeply and were considered part of the family. So God told the Jews 
even when it became uh, dealing with, with slavery, that you won't find anywhere in the Bible where God commands slavery. But knowing that slavery was taking place, he had some regulations for it, that you were to treat him a certain way. For the Jews, if someone owes you a debt, they become your servant, but you must release them after seven years. No matter what, after seven years, they're free. And if they acquired a family during the time of being with you, uh, let the family go too. Now, in some cases, slaves who really love their masters at the end of seven years would say, I want to be a bondservant. That means that they don't want to go anywhere. That means they love their master. They love living there. They love serving there. They love the family. They love everything about it. And they would take that servant and take him to the door and they would put, they would pierce his ears and pierce his ear and put in an earring uh, crying out to the world that he was a bondservant to his master. That's why so many times we see Paul describing himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Do you love your master so much? Do you love Jesus to such a point that you're willing to give him your all? Are you a bondservant of Christ or are you just going to heaven? Do you love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Or do you love him based on what he gives you? We see so many times in the Bible these bondservants who were sold completely with all their heart, soul, and mind to their masters and used in a mighty powerful way. But what we started seeing when Christianity came about was masters and slaves were getting saved. And that's why God would say down the road there is no longer uh, man or woman, Jew or Gentile, bond or free, but we're one in Christ Jesus. And so now we see barriers starting to break down because masters were getting saved and slaves were getting saved. And they were becoming brothers in Christ. Now here's the unique thing that was happening was that you would see a master and his slaves going to church. This was unheard of in Rome. They, they would go to church together and they would all worship and they'd sit next to each other side by side. They work, weren't looking for the better seat. And in some cases, there were slaves who became elders and leaders in the church and even past, became pastors in the church, which was really crazy to think about because at home in the workplace, their masters were over the servants, but in the church, the servant was over the master as a pastor or an elder or a leader. God was tearing down the walls. And so he says there in verse 1, let as many bondservants who are under the yoke count their own masters worthy of all honor so that the name of God and his doctrine may not be blasphemed and those having believing masters let them not despise them because they are brethren but rather serve them because those who are benefited are believers and beloved teach and exhort these things and so when we act like God wants us to as an employee or as an employer, we're honoring God and we're actually a reflection of Jesus Christ. So in verse 1 and 2, he speaks to us as employees and employer and to honor God and each other and to represent Christ. We are not to use Christianity for our own gain or not to do what we should be doing. And I, I can't tell you how many times I've heard bad reports about 
business owners who said they hired Christians because they heard that they would be faithful. And then only to have the, the rude awakening to find out that somebody tried to take advantage of that owner to use the name of, of being a Christian to benefit themselves. But on the other hand, you see where you have owners who claim to be Christians who might do it, use uh, hiring Christians for their own gain, thinking that they can push them farther than anybody else because if they're really Christians, they're going to go the extra mile. And you see Christian owners of businesses taking advantage of Christian employees because they're supposed to be an example of Jesus Christ. So, hey, why don't you stay later? Why don't you come earlier? Why don't you just shine your brakes? Why don't you do this? Why don't you go the extra mile? And actually abusing Christians for their own gain. And God says, don't do that. But then on the other hand, I feel for Christian owners of businesses who hire Christians and don't get what they thought they were getting. Because how many times have we heard the stories where I've talked to people and they say, man, I don't even want to hire Christians anymore because I've been taken so advantage of. That's sad. That's a misrepresentation of God. When, when you get hired by a company, whether the guy's a Christian or he's not a Christian, you were hired to do a job. Do your job. By doing your job, by being on time, by going the extra mile, you are a representative of Jesus Christ that helps bring that person to the Lord. But when you have Christians that aren't showing up on time, they're taking longer breaks, they're not doing their job, and then the response is, oh, brother, just have grace. You know, God has grace. Have mercy. That's a shame. We should be the ones in the workplace that stand out more than anybody else that works there. We should be the one that when the boss says he's ready to like advance somebody to a higher level, he's looking at you because you go above and beyond. Because you are honest. Because you are faithful. And just like Joseph, we want to rise up because of our faithfulness and the love that we have for Jesus that all see. And for that reason, they wanted to advance us to a higher position in the workplace. And as employers, if you own a business and, and you've hired Christians or you've hired unbelievers, treat them like God would want you to treat them. Treat them fairly. Be kind. Be an example of Jesus Christ. So now as we come to the rest of this portion of Scripture towards the end of this letter, he finishes up this letter reminding Timothy all the things that he was encouraging him about earlier in the chapters. And he was warning him against false doctrine. He was warning him against false teacher. He was warning him how they should be as leaders and elders and pastors and deacons. And he reminds Timothy all the things that he was encouraging him to get a handle on concerning false teachers and false doctrines, and that was to put an end to them. When the Bible says a little leaven leavens a whole lump, when you have somebody that infiltrates a church and they start teaching a false doctrine, you need to get a handle on it quickly. And many times those that are caught up in false doctrines, they're caught up, um, it's not like they have an agenda, it's just that they don't really know the Bible and somebody's come along and duped them. So you got to have grace when you talk to somebody who's caught up in false doctrine and in love, share with them the truth, the truth of the Word of God, the importance of knowing the Word of God. False doctrines that he's going to be talking about are those who start 
arguing about things that aren't even biblical because somebody told them they were instead of searching out the Bible themselves. And so in verse 3, he says, if anyone teaches otherwise and does not consent to wholesome words, even the words of our Lord Jesus Christ, and to the doctrine which accords with godliness, what does he say about him? He is proud, knowing nothing, but obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicions, useless wrangling of men of corrupt minds and destitute of the truth, who suppose that godliness is a means of gain from such withdraw yourself. <coughs> Excuse me. What is to be destitute of truth? It means they knew of the truth, but they didn't receive the truth, and they teach lies. There are people who say they're Christians, but they want to argue about all kinds of things that aren't scriptural, aren't true doctrine. They want to bring you back under the law. They don't believe that Christ was the finished work. They get caught up into stories and fables and wasted conversations that don't lift up the name of Jesus Christ, but lift up their agenda for their own game. You know, there are Christians today that have embraced evolution. I don't know what they call it, progressive Christianity or something. But they actually say they believe in evolution, but God was the start of it. So God started it, and then over millions of years we came to this and that. I don't know. I read in the Bible that God created everything in six days. And on the seventh, he rested. I take that literally. And then you got this group that says, well, Peter says a day is a thousand years. A thousand years is like a day. Creation was 6,000 years, and he rested in the 7,000 year. I don't believe that because I read in the Bible that at the morning of the evening was the first day, and the morning of the evening was the second day, and so on till the six days. Let's read the Bible literally. Let's believe God's Word for what it says. And don't get caught up in vain wrangling and jangling and fables and people that are trying to redirect you and they want to argue about stuff that doesn't even matter and there are people that don't even share the Gospel. There are people in this world and there are people in the church that just want to argue about all kinds of things that aren't profitable about anything and the same people do not share the Lord Jesus with other people. It's a waste of time, and they will derail you and waste your time so you can't share the love of God with somebody. We're here to share the gospel. We're here. Our goal is reduce the population of hell. Bring people to Jesus' feet. We catch them. He cleans them. Stop trying to clean each other. You make a lousy Holy Spirit. <laughs> wow. There's people that the problem he was having even there in Ephesus, Timothy was having, was also the people that were trying to bring people back under the law. Man, you want to live by the law? Guess what? You're going to die by the law. The law can't save you. You know why? Because you can't keep it. Thank God for His grace. Thank God for His mercy. Thank God that He made salvation so easy. It's by grace that you're saved, not of yourself not of works. It's by faith in Jesus Christ. When we confess Jesus, 
with our mouth and believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. It's all about faith. It's not about earning. It's not about works. But there are people today who call themselves Christians that will bring you back under the bondage of the law, will bring you back and say you've got to worship on Saturday, will bring you back and say you've got to have certain dietary laws, and they don't even realize that Jesus was the end of the law. Jesus fulfilled the law. And the Bible says for you and me, we are now dead to the law because we are in Christ Jesus. I'm keeping the Sabbath because He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And I get to worship Him every single day. I get to eat whatever I want because He said, pray over it, it's yours. I was excited about that. I don't know about you guys. but I don't count calories. I don't count carbs. I just pray and say, Lord, turn this bacon cheeseburger into spirulina and bee pollen. In Jesus' name. But there was something else. He made this statement that people that do these things, listen to this, this is how he describes people that will try to bring you under the law, people that will try to teach you false doctrines. He says that they're proud. Do you know pride is the origin of sin? He says that they are proud, knowing nothing, but is obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which come envy, strife, reveling, evil suspicion, useless wranglings, men of corrupt minds and destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. That these people that get involved in these things to try to pull you away from truth that they actually do it to make money. They'll actually dupe you. They'll come to you and say, listen, hey, you know what? God gave me a revelation that the church doesn't know. Oh, really? According to the Bible, I got everything I need. Oh, no, well, God shared something with me. He hasn't shared with the rest of the church. Uh, that's not what the Bible says. And then he'll say things like this, but you know what? For $250, I can give you all my tapes on the seminar that will help you to understand what I know. They're trying to make money. You, you see these groups that, that try to make money teaching people the gifts of the Spirit. Hello? The gifts of the Spirit are given without repentance. They're given by God. You can't purchase them. You can't pay somebody to teach you the gifts of the Spirit. But so many innocent Christians get duped because somebody sounds so sincere and leads them astray. If you don't want to be led astray, know your Bible. That's the only, the only thing I could tell you. Or grab somebody that knows their Bible better than you and bring them alongside to that person. When I see so many so-called pastors taking advantage of people on the TV for the sake of gain, it makes me sick. When I see these teachings, and I thank God I don't see them as much as I used to, but there used to be pastors on that dealt with faith prosperity, that if you weren't healthy and you weren't wealthy, it's because you had sin in your life or not enough faith. That is a lie from the pit of hell. And then they encouraged people to send their money in so they would pray that they would, you would be healed or that you would be wealthy, and people bought into it. You had the guys that were always talking about the hundredfold blessing. The hundredfold blessing. Send me your $50 and you'll receive a hundredfold blessing from God. He's appealing to Christians' flesh. If I came to you today and said, listen, if all of you give the church $50, you're going to receive $5,000 back from the Lord, that's a good investment. 
but you're not, be, you're not being driven by your heart. You're being driven by your flesh. You're like, how about if I give 100? How much will I get back? And these guys who do this kind of stuff, their ministries are going under, so they're begging at people to give money that they don't have money to give, saying, you'll receive a hundredfold blessing. And, and my answer to them would be, why don't you send us all $50 and you receive your hundredfold blessing? And they do this because God says in His Word they're proud. They know nothing. They're obsessed with disputes and arguments over words from which envy, strife, rivaling, evil suspicions, useless wranglings, men of corrupt minds, destitute of truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gaining wealth. He says, from such, withdraw yourselves. And then he moves on. He says, here's what true godliness is. Godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing with these, we shall be content. So, did you bring anything into this world? When you die, are you going to be able to take anything with you? Well, we all know that, right? I watched every one of my kids get born. They didn't have any wallets attached to them when they were born. They didn't bring anything into this world. They didn't have no money. They just grew up and wanted my money. And when you hear about people who, when they die, they're buried in their, their Cadillac or they're buried in their boat or it's, what? Job said, naked I came into this world, naked I'm going out. The Lord giveth, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So we can't take anything with us, but we can send it ahead. We can send it ahead. We can invest in the treasures of heaven and not in the things of this earth. We can invest into the kingdom of God, into ministry, into our neighbor, into somebody to give them the gospel. We can make investments now and send ahead and have great reward in heaven because we saw the bigger picture and we weren't so attached to our stuff and our money down here that we learned that God gave it to me and if He gave it to me, if I distribute it, He's going to give more so I can distribute more to help others to further the kingdom. There was a story of a man who was super wealthy, multimillionaire, loved Jesus, came to church every week, um, but he never, he never gave at the church. He never gave to missions. He never gave to help those in need. He just always kept his money to himself. And when he died, he stood before the Lord because he was born again. And, and the Lord said, go with these angels. They're going to show you your place. And he was so excited as he walked the streets of gold. And he was looking at the mansions here and the mansions over here. He couldn't wait to get to his mansion. And finally, the angels brought him up to this little shack about the size of an outhouse. And they go, here you go. And he goes, what's this? And they said, we did all we could with what you sent ahead. <laughs> Where are you building your treasures? Here or in heaven? I just pray that when you get to heaven, you're going to have all the crowns.
And you're going to have precious gems and gold and silver to throw at the feet of our Lord and say, praise you. Hallelujah. Look what you did. That's my desire for you guys. That you would finish, but not just finish, but to finish well. We need to understand we have more than most, guys. If you think you're poor, I'll tell you what. I'll take you on a missions trip. You'll see what poverty is. You have so much, it's crazy. Trusting in God, seeking purity, being content, that's great gain. No matter what your situation you're in right now, can you just be content that He's in charge? But I don't get it. I don't understand. It's a great storm. He's got your hand. But it just seems like it's more than I can handle. He's got you. I don't know how much more I can bear. Don't worry. He's there. He'll see you through it. God loves you. In verse 9, he says, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into foolish and harmless lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. Now let me just make something clear. There is nothing wrong with being wealthy. I know a lot of wealthy people that are godly people and they realize God gave them that wealth and they use it for God's glory. But what he's saying here is that when your whole driving force is to be rich, you've gotten your eyes off of Jesus and you've got it on money. And the love of money is the root to all evil. Money's not the root to all evil. It's the love of money. Money in the hands of a godly person can be used for God. Riches, power, fame can become a snare in anyone's life. You can start buying into the hype of the world that says, wow, you're just so amazing. Look at you. You're so wealthy. You're powerful. You've got so many talents. And we can start buying into our own press. The only person I want to worry about what they think of me is Jesus Christ. Because you might have a, a good view of me. You may have a bad view. You may like me. You may not like me. You may kind of like me. I'm going to do my best to do what God's told me to do, to love you and to encourage you and to feed the sheep. But bottom line is when I lay my head on my pillow at night, I only care about what Jesus thinks about me and not what everybody else because the crowd's fickle. But I love Jesus Christ. In verse 10 he says, For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil, for which some have strayed from their faith and in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. And like I said before, money is not evil. It's the love of money. Nothing wrong with having a lot. We just got to remember it's all about how you view money. When you get an abundance, do you think godly things? Wow, now we can do this thing for God. Or is it now I can do this thing for me? And you know what? Please don't take this wrong. You got nice cars, you got boats, you got nice houses. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. But who's number one in your life? Your house, your car, your boat, your money, or Jesus Christ? If it's Jesus Christ, guess what? God can use you in a mighty way, whether you have a lot or a little. You know, it's like riches. Don't make you godly, but being poor doesn't make you godly. 
And because you have a lot, doesn't mean God can use you. And because you have nothing, doesn't mean God can use you. You have to have a surrendered heart. Because a poor person can have a love for money even more than a rich person. It's how you view money. In Mark chapter 10, I want to read you something. Mark chapter 10, verse 17, Jesus runs into this rich young ruler. And it says this, Now as he was going out on the road, one came running, knelt before him, and asked him, Good teacher, what shall I do that I may inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good, but one that is God. That's an incredible statement he just made to this man. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not lie. Bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Notice the ones that he describes to this young man. And the young man answers and he says to him, Teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Then Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said to him, One thing you lack, go your way, sell whatever you have, give it to the poor, and you'll have treasures in heaven. And come take up your cross and follow me. But he was sad at this word, and he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. It says that Jesus loved him. But you know what Jesus pointed out? That his money was his God. He, he had done all these things. He, he, he didn't commit adultery. Uh, he, he didn't murder. He didn't steal. He, he wasn't a liar. He, he, he honored his father and mother. But, but the thing is, he forgot the commandment that I'll have no other God. And money became his God. And he went away sad. And, and hopefully we'll see him in heaven. Maybe he went away sad and then woke up to the fact and it's not that God's saying, if you really love Jesus, you've got to sell everything you got and give it to the Lord. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, if it gets in the way and that becomes your God, sell it. That thing you're polishing up in the driveway every week has become more important than going to church, sell it. Get a junker. You know what I'm saying? And so then Jesus looks around at his disciples and he said, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? You know how hard it is to reach wealthy people that don't know Jesus? Because they got boats, they got mansions, they got cars, they got airplanes, they got wives, they got everything they want. Why do I need Jesus? It's very rare that you will run into a man or a woman that says, man, I just have so much wealth. I've got everything I need. I want to try Jesus too. It's usually people that are broken that come to Jesus, but not always. And Jesus says, how hard is it for those who have riches to enter into the kingdom of God? And his disciples were astonished at his words. But Jesus answered again, and he said to them, Children, how hard is it for those who trust in riches to enter into the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter in the kingdom. It's easier for a camel to go through an eye of the needle. He could say that back then, but he couldn't say that now because we have blenders, right? But he's making a point. He's making a point. And they were greatly astonished, saying among themselves, who can be saved? And Jesus looked at them and he said, with men it's impossible, 
but with God, but, but not with God, for with God all things are possible. And Peter began to say to him, See, we have left everything to follow you. And Jesus answered and he said this, Assuredly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or wife or children or lands for my sake in the Gospels who shall not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first will be last, and the last will be first. Listen, anything that you give up for Jesus, anything that you give to God will not be forgotten. You will receive that hundredfold blessing in the kingdom of God, in heaven. Because why? Because you're sending it ahead. In other words, don't make money your goal. Make God your goal. Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you. Use what God gives you today to invest in the kingdom of God. Invest in things that will last, spiritual things. So you got to ask yourself, whose money is it? Whose stuff is it? Whose car is it? Whose boat is it? Whose plane is it? Do you have money or does the money have you? Now we see greedy men in the Bible. We saw that, but we saw good men where money wasn't important to them. Job was the wealthiest man at the time. Money wasn't important to him. Jesus was important to him. The Lord Himself. We saw Abraham, wealthiest man at that time, but he never even built a mansion for himself. He lived in tents because he was a pilgrim passing through. He was obsessed with God, not stuff. King David, super wealthy, but money was never a thing for him. He just wanted more of God. We look... Um, into the Scriptures where people sold themselves out for money. Judas sold out our Lord for 30 pieces of silver. Ananias and Sapphira used money to gain fame. In Acts 8, Simon the sorcerer thought he could buy the gifts of the Spirit. And how many places today are trying to merchandise the gifts of the Spirit if you come join their seminars for so much money? In Acts 24, Felix the governor wanted Paul to pay him off in order to release him from his chains. And remember the greed of the high priests. Every feast that took place, they were running a racket in the Father's house of prayer and making millions off the people. Crazy. Evil is driven by money. Think about how many crimes would go away if money wasn't attached to it. Drugs, weapons, nuclear weapons, illegal weapons sold for gain, human trafficking, prostitution, corrupt politicians. Before we got saved, we all lived for the flesh, didn't we? We're still battling that now, even as a believer. The flesh can take over. It's a war. Put on the armor of God. <laughs> You wake up in the morning, the fight begins. Before we got saved, we lived for the flesh. But here's the thing. Before we got saved, living for the flesh, whether it was money, drugs, sex, alcohol, whatever it was, you were never satisfied. You always had to have more. You swore you wouldn't do it again, but then the next day you did it again. 
You are never satisfied. God puts an emptiness in every man and woman's heart that can only be filled with Jesus. And the contentment that we have, that great gain that we have right now, is because we got Jesus. Jesus filled that hole. I don't need drugs anymore. I don't need immorality. I don't need crime. I don't need sexual pleasures that are not of God. I don't need that stuff because I got Jesus. And He fills that hole in my life that nothing else can fill and gives me the strength to live for Him. Now we're living in Jesus Christ. Spiritual things are alive in our lives. So let me ask you, what are true riches? Being in Christ Jesus. Being saved, being born again. I'm going to read a few scriptures in closing here of true riches. Ephesians 1.7 In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Wow. Ephesians 1.18 The eyes of our understanding being enlightened that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints. Ephesians 3.8 To me who am less than the least of all saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Philippians 4.19 And my God shall supply all your need according to His riches in glory by Christ Jesus. Colossians 1.27 To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles which is Christ in you, the hope and glory. Can you say amen? In Hebrews 11.26, By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing of pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he looked to the reward. Let me close with this. If you love money, you'll never be satisfied. And if you love Jesus Christ, you'll never thirst again. Amen? The worship team would come forward.